this is uh, okay. So you have uh, in. And, and this is a broad sense. This is a little. This is a little tougher to find unless you got somebody that's actually looking for it. But in chapter 19, which is the chapter we're talking about chiasms today, and we're talking about Genesis, uh, Judges chapter 19 through 21. There's some uh, preliminary information. We're just going to give you just to kind of help ease us into these last three chapters. But as an example, in uh, we have what we call a separation. That would be the introduction in, in 19, 1 through 2. Then you have the journey in, in, uh, uh, to Bethlehem in 19, uh, 3 and 4. Then you have a stay. You have actually several stays. Uh, and th- so th- the end of the, uh, well, you have a stay for the fourth day, stay for the fifth day. Uh, we get to, to the, the second journey, which is E. That's the most important part of this whole chapter is E, which would be verses 10B to 14. And then you have another stay in, uh, at the old man's house, and you have another stay. And then you have, a, you have the journey home, and then you have the conclusion at the end. So, again... You have this start of the journey, end of the journey, and then everything in between starts to go towards the journey to Gibeah. Uh, and that's, that's where the, the crux of this particular uh, lesson is, is focused on. So um, it starts off kind of weird. It starts off kind of strange. But it is, it is a chiasm in a very broad sense. There are some smaller chiasms where uh, you find them often in the Psalms where you'll notice that there's a the first, they'll be like, uh, the Lord is great, and then uh, we praise his name, and then uh, uh, worthy is your name, and then we praise his name, and the Lord is great. That would be, a, in essence, that would be a chiasm. I, have, I don't have them all marked in my Bible, trust me. There are lots that we run across, and you have to, you have to really be paying attention to find a chiasm. It's not uh, strictly Old Testament stuff. Pretty much so, yeah. Yeah. Every once in a while you find it in the New Testament when, when Jesus is talking, uh, you find a chiasm in some of his his teachings. And again, it's done it's it's a Hebrew thing that they would pick up on a lot sooner than we would. And sometimes I look at it and I go, Yeah, it's interesting, but I'm not sure you know, we really have to struggle to find them. Is it used so much because we don't have punctuation? Yeah, it's, again, think about this as, you know, this is pre-PC, pre, okay? Pre-Apple. Pre you know, there are no, there are no, uh, and, and while they do have, while they do occasionally change the way that they write something, as an example, in the, old, in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, I had the opportunity to view several of them over several different locations. Uh, one was a traveling group in, in, uh, that came over to Grand Rapids several years ago. I went over there and looked at them, and, and in it you would see the Hebrew being written out, and every time you got to the word Jehovah or Yahweh, uh, you'd have the letters, uh, again, consonants only, but they, the, the easiest way to to talk about it is assume that you're writing in script and then you decide to write in block letters. Mm-hmm. So the, the Yahweh name was written in block letters. But other than that, it was pretty unusual for there to be a, uh, you know, you didn't underline, you didn't, you know, uh, capitalize, you didn't, it, it was just kind of all uh, simple writing. In fact, uh, the, uh, the Greek has the same situation. There's no punctuation in Greek, and, and there's no break between, uh, literally between the words. You have to figure it out, you know. So if you're really good at, at Greek, you can. <laughs> but there isn't like it's okay. This is the, and this is Lord, and this is heaven, and it's kind of all just run together. Uh, and and then it's either it's either it's either that one of the terms that in the Greek is unsel, and unsel is a lower case, if I remember correctly, because they also wrote in uppercase. 
but they either wrote in one or the other. They didn't write in both. Nope. It wasn't a crossover, so it wasn't like you did. So you know, it's like today. Either we all write. It'd be like all writing in capital letters or all writing in lowercase letters. You know. Um, so anyhow, that's that's a freebie. Um, we're talking about 19 and, and 20, and I want to get into this, but I want to talk just a little bit about uh, what we're going to be dealing with because we're going to be dealing with, in general, um, a small group of travelers arrive in a, in a city at evening. A person presents himself as an alien and observes the presence of this company. The travelers have a mind to spend the night in the open square. That's very typical if you're not invited into a host. A, a, a host insists that they come and spend the night at his house. He, uh, they agree to do that. The host washes the, the guest's feet. He, he provides a meal for them. Uh, and then suddenly depraved men arrive and surround the house. They demand the host deliver the male guests uh, to them so they, they can commit homosexual gang rape. Uh, the host protests this uh, display of wickedness, and uh, the protest proves uh, futile, and the substitution of a female is uh, basic, or females is handed over to the, uh, the people that are the men outside the house. That's the, uh, the general gist of what's going to happen in this chapter. And we're going to find um, that this is not the only time this happens in Scripture. Um, it does. And, and when we get to there, I have handouts to show you the comparison between the two. Sodom and Gomorrah, the words uh, that are used in, in uh, Genesis 19 and the words used here in Judges 19 are almost identical. It's, it's fascinating, and I would say in general, just as we get into this, that what we're looking at is this writer of Judges decided, you know what, I'm going to be ironic in my writing, and I'm going to use the exact terminology that was used in, in Genesis 19 to point out the evil that, this, that is taking place here. So that's kind of uh, uh, an analogy, if you will, or an allegory, or well, not an allegory, an, al an allegory of uh, uh, Genesis 19. And I think that that's what we're going to find as we get into that. So that being said, let's dig in and let's uh, read through uh, the majority of this chapter. We're going to read through all through verse 28. Uh, so chapter 19 of Judges, verses uh, 1 through verse 28. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would uh, open our eyes today. Uh, we're dealing with uh, difficult and at times thorny issues. And so we pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek to uh, uh, chart a course through your, your scripture. We pray that you'd give us insight and give us wisdom and give us uh, the ability to see clearly your intentions from this passage today. We again ask your blessing on us and in all that we uh, attempt to do today. May we do so to honor and glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick it up on... Oh, man, this is, this is, this is confusing. <laughs> Tom, you're going to start us off, man. Tom's starting us off. Gary's table, Denny's table, and our table. And we'll go... <laughs> I don't know if we can do this or not, man. This is like backwards. Yeah, it's on the other side of the hall. Yeah, that's true. Everything's, everything's, it's a mirror well, image. Here, right? we walked in here. Yeah, I know. It's a mirror image today. All right, so let's do that, with starting with chapter 19, verse 1. Tom, take it away. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and a certain Levite residing in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, took himself to a concubine from Bethlehem in, in Judah. But his uh, slave woman had an argument with him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She stayed there for four months. Then her husband set out after her and convinced her to come back. He had his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. She took him into her father's house, and when the young woman's father saw him, he was happy to welcome him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him 
and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. <clears throat> and it came to pass on the fourth day, when they arose early in the morning, that he rose up to depart. And the damsel's father said unto his son-in-law, Comfort thine heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. So the two of them sat down together and had something to eat and drink. Then the woman's father said, Please stay the night and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law pursued, pursued him, so he stayed there a night. On the morning of the fifth day, he was up early again, ready to leave. And again, the woman's father said, have something to eat, then you can leave later this afternoon. So they had another day of feasting. Then when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave, the, the father-in-law, gross father, said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent, and the servant said to his master, Come, please, let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. His, his master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israel. We will go on to Gabra. He added, come, let us reach Gabra or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. And then they passed by and went through their way. And the sun went down on them to Gabra, which belongs to Benjamin. Yes. Uh -huh. They turned aside there to go in and spend the night in Gabra. He went in and sat down in the open square of the city, but no one put them in to spend the night. That evening, an old man came into the city from the fields. His home was in the hill country Ephraim, but now he was living in the city of Gebra. The men of Gebra were from the tribe of Benjamin. He looked and looked up and saw the traveler in the city square. Where are you heading and where did you come from? The man asked. So he said to them, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem and Judea. I am going to the house of Duke, the house of the Lord. But there was no one who will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and provender for our asses, and there is bread and wine also for me, and for thy handmaid, and for the young man which is with thy servants. There is no want of anything. You are welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I will give you anything you might need, but whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. <clears throat> so he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. <clears throat> While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, Bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, do not be so vile, since this man is my guest. Don't do anything, uh, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them all to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine, concubine and brought her out to him. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daybreak, daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door to the house and stepped out to continue his way, there lay his concubine, fallen at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let us be going. 
but there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's uh, this is going to provide some interesting discussion, isn't it? When we start thinking about it. So, <laughs> so first of all, you notice that there is no mention of any name, even though this is a lot of, there are individuals here, their names are not mentioned. And I think there's probably a reason why that is. They represent every person. They represent, the Levite represents a person who's a traveler who is supposed to be someone who, who knows God and is obviously not the best of husbands. Uh, we've got a traveler, we've got a, 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 a concubine that's not named for, and think of her as every woman that's ever been abused. You've got, uh, uh, you know, his servant who is just a afterthought. You've got uh, a guy who's staying at, who's uh, an old man who's living somewhere far away from his, well, not necessarily far away, but several miles from his home, probably 40 miles from his home. And um, he is uh, a host who appears to be a good guy, but ends up not being so good. And then we've got a bunch of scoundrels or scallywags or whatever, you know, very wicked people who come out and to abuse this, this woman. So there's a whole host of people, and, and, and I think the, the, the point of, that the author is doing is he's not mentioning any names, and he's doing it on purpose to, for us to realize that we can identify all sorts of people with this, and somehow or other we, we probably identify with somebody in this story. Maybe to, to lesser or greater degrees, but the idea is to, is that this is designed to point out that in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and look at all of the different people doing everything that they think is right in their own eyes. So it was interesting. They uh, passed over towns that uh, had no Israelites in there, and they go to yes. Yes. And these perpetrators, we don't know if they were Israelites or Gentiles. Although they're Israelites. They're, okay. Yeah, the, the implication is they're Benjamites. Because when we get to the rest of the story, uh, in 20 and 21, uh, the entire nation of Israel is going to rise up against the tribe of Benjamin and almost destroy them to the point where there's only about 600 men left in the entire tribe. Uh, so they... they they do a. They're 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 definitely Benjamites that have done this. But they were supposed to be something special, like Paul was a Benjamite, right? Mm-hmm. So was the very first king, who Paul was named after originally. Saul. Yep. Yep. There's a there's a. It's an interesting. It, Benjamin, by the way, remember this for the coming weeks. Benjamin means son of my right hand. You're going to find that interesting as we get a little further in. There's some irony in that. But uh, he's supposed to be the son of my right hand, and this is a case where the right hand, the left hand, doesn't know what the right hand is doing, and the left hand does. It decides to destroy the right hand. (laughs) I had a question, just kind of on terminology. This woman they call a concubine, and at other times a wife, and then this guy is the dad's son-in-law, and it's like they're married. You're not married. I thought a concubine was pretty much just a prostitute. So Good question. Prostitute. Good question. Um, and we're going to, and I was getting there. So thank you for bringing up the next point of my art, of my discussion today. That's great. So uh, I think uh, Rick, when he read uh, his particular uh, version of the scripture, it said slave. And then it's been, she's been referred to as a concubine, as a wife, as a something else, uh, uh, you know, uh, perhaps a prostitute. So there's some, some thinking behind this, and uh, let's at least talk a little bit about it, because what we've got here is um, concubines are, uh, are in Scripture all the way back in Genesis. And a concubine appears to be somebody who is, um, think of it like, Think of it like a second-class citizen or a second-class wife. 
You've got the first wife. Those are the wives that, are, that you're married to. Then you have a secondary type of marriage to concubines. Uh, you know, you've got, uh, remember Solomon is probably the worst example in Scripture. He's got like 300, what is it, 300 wives and center of concubines, or maybe it's the opposite. Anyhow, he's got a lot of women. You know, it's like, holy smokes, man. You know, he's, uh, you can just imagine if they're all living in the same place, what that must have been like. Anyhow, we won't go down that road. But anyhow, it is a person who has been uh, probably given in marriage but without a dowry which is significant because, again, they have a second-class position. And while she uh, uh, will uh, possibly, her children will possibly be considered uh, for inheritance, but sometimes are not. Uh, again, they, it all depends on whether or not the father descent, decides to acknowledge them as full uh, children with full rights. So uh, remember we talked about uh, one of the, the guys that we talk about, Abimelech, remember him? Just a few chapters ago, he was what? Son of a concubine. Yeah, and, and what happens? Jephthah, well, who was he? Son of a concubine. Did he get his inheritance? No. The family rose up and said, no, we're not going to, you're, you're, you're from that woman. You know, so it, it's like, today it would be like if somebody had uh, multiple families, you know, where you have the original family and you're married to them and, you know, uh, 10 miles down the road you, you have another family that you raise. That's kind of what we're talking about. In this particular case, apparently the concubine and the wives perhaps knew each other. But that might not always be the case. So, uh there's a virgin daughter that is that is uh, the 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 host that has a virgin daughter. Yeah, yeah. But she's probably a virgin when she's given to her husband. Now, what we have here is we have an interesting series of events that that are not fully explained in Scripture. Is she a prostitute, or did she prostitute herself after she left her husband? Was it her father that put her into a place of prostitution when she got back to his place? We're not sure of what transpired or why she's considered a prostitute. There's no mention of a wedding or a wedding feast or like you see in other parts of... Uh, well, you, you, start, you start off with her leaving him. She's been with him in, in a relationship in Ephraim and she goes home. So what we don't know is, did she go home because she was disgraced? And if so, how was she disgraced? Or was she abused by her husband? She's, he's obviously not much of a, of a he, he's not very caring. You know, you notice that we got to verses 26, 27, 28. He gets up and says, hey, let's go. You know, she's already had a night of, uh, of unbelievable torture and, and you know, uh, Obviously, physical activity, and and we don't know. Here's a, we don't know whether she's dead or not. He says, "Let put her body on the Right, but we we're not told whether or not that body is alive or dead. We know that when she gets back, and we didn't get to that part, but the last part of the chapter is when he gets there to his home, he ends he ends up dismembering her. So it's and so the question is, did he kill her? He's within his rights to do so, but did he or not? So th this is the, the story. And then we have this interesting thing that happens. He comes, it, four months pass, and now all of a sudden he decides his, what, he wants his concubine back, his second-tier wife, if you will. You know, be like, you know, you've got uh, the NCAA, you've got Division One, Division Two. Yeah. <laughs> She's like a Division Two. okay? Not quite up to Division One, but she's still got value. And he decides to go get her. And he gets there. And man, oh man, can you believe this, this father? He is like the best host you could imagine. And in, in this time frame and in that part of the world, in the, in the Middle East, it would not be unusual for you to not only have host uh, your someone who comes to your house but but to treat them 
amazingly. Like, you know, you go out and, and three days of, of, of fellowship is not too much. You know, it's pretty, it, it would not be unusual in, in this time frame. Oh, stay another day. Stay another day. Let me take care of you. I was out to, I was out to dinner Sunday, and uh, we ran and we're sitting there eating, and uh, we, uh, I happen to look up, and here comes a couple that I've known, twenty some years ago, that I ministered to, and was involved in their lives, and uh, I acknowledged, we waved to them, and they went and sat down and got ready to leave the restaurant, and I go. Uh, I need my bill. And um, the waitress is all flustered. She has no idea what to say. She's kind of hemming and hawing. I said, is there a problem? She said, well, yeah. She said, somebody in the restaurant has paid your bill. <laughs> I knew immediately who it was. <laughs> you know, it was Rain Rose. And I go, I said, doggone it. Okay, well, thank thank you very much. Appreciate that. So we got up to leave, and I went over. Next thing I know, I'm sitting down at their table. You know, my wife and I are sitting down there, and we had time of fellowship talking with them while they ate. Well, they they were they're amazing hosts. I mean, they took care of. It. I didn't expect it, but they did. In fact, my wife says, you know, this is only like the second time this has happened where someone, you know, just out of the blue, we didn't expect it, just paid our bill, you know, unexpectedly. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, but so it's a good host. You know, they, they took care of us. And you can imagine, we, we've got uh, my daughter and son-in-law coming in tomorrow night. They're going to be here for several days. They're going off to a wedding up in uh, Traverse City, and then they're coming back, and they're going to spend more, a couple more days with us. My wife is busy being the hostess. She's planning out all the meals. She's trying to figure out what you know they'll eat, what they'll like, make sure that they're taken well care of. The house will be freshly cleaned. There'll be certainly clean sheets on their, on their beds. Everything will be pristine when they walk in. They'll have little treats in their bed. I mean, oh, I mean, it's like it's like going to a a, a resort, you know. It's like, good night, babe. When, when do I get those treats on my bed? <laughs> you, know? Oh. you know, how can we think highly of the men of that time? Well, we're going to get to that discussion. That's a that's an interesting discussion. But let's deal. With, what we've got here is we have a contrast between somebody who's an incredible host. And, and keeps encouraging him to stay. And then we got this guy in Gibeah that ends up being a, an okay host, but not really. He's, he, he in himself is kind of a problem, you know. And so uh, we, we, they decide that they're going to, you know, he keeps imploring to stay, stay. And, and the, the Levite's done like, man, I'm really done. I want to leave. So they finally, the fifth day, he finally gets away and breaks away from his, his father-in-law. Now, they're in Bethlehem. The sun is setting, and they're in Jerusalem. You know how far away that is? Four miles. That, you know how late in the day you got your start? It's like every time he goes, Dad, stay up with a little bit more. We're going to have some more wine. We got some, I got some fresh bread. We got some, you know, we got some kebabs that are on the grill. It's going to be great. Got some hummus, you know, tabbouleh. We're good to go, man. Come on, let's have some more food. And finally, he says, man, I got to leave. I can't stay. I got to get home. He's now, he moves four miles, and the sun is setting. He goes, yeah, I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to stay with a Gentile. I'm not going to stay with a Canaanite because I can't trust the Canaanites. But I can trust my fellow countrymen. I'm going to go on to Gibeah, which is, again, about another four miles away. This time he gets there, and he gets into the square. This is typical. When you go to the square, it's kind of like the place where you go. And usually somebody, because there aren't a lot of inns, there aren't a lot of hotels, and Gibeah's not a big place. It's a small, very small town, small village, really. And so you expect them to take travelers in because that's what you did. That was the appropriate thing. You take a traveler in. No one offers them a, a home. No one offers them a place to stay. So an old guy comes in from working in the fields, and, and if you've ever, again, this is unique to that part of the world. In our area here, 
we, when we farm, we, go, we build the house on the property and we stay there. And then we go into town for supplies. In many parts of the world, especially like in, in uh, southern Europe, uh, it was true in mid- the Middle East, it's still true, where the farmland is not necessarily connected with the house. The house might be in town. And then you go out to the farmland. We saw this when we were in the Middle East. We saw this again when we were in uh, in uh, Sicily. Those of us that traveled to Sicily with me, uh, we yeah, know. That, for protection. Well, <laughs> part of that and part of that is just the, it's it's land, but it's not necessarily you know it doesn't have all the necessities of of that, and perhaps part of it is is also protection. Sure. Yeah, you're exposed out there. Yeah. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's a, you know, and again, remember that uh, the way that you did these, uh, these homes, the, you started off with a, a one floor, and you had a room for the animals and a room for you. <laughs> and then as you got a little more wealthy, you put on a second floor. Yeah. Uh, and if you got real wealthy, you maybe had a place for the chickens and the cows other than in your house. Um, you know Giuseppe, and you know that his father, when his, his father built their home, uh, I've been to the place. Some of you guys have been, maybe have seen it, but I've been to the home, the, the family home. It started off that way, one level, in town. Animals on one side, family on the other side. It's not like that now. You know, now it's got like three or four floors, but... Every time they, they added on to it, you know, they eventually got to the point where they didn't have to have the, uh, the cows. They used the cows and, or the oxen or whatever to, uh, to farm the land. So it's not that, not that long ago. That's in Giuseppe's lifetime. Yeah. Well, they, in uh, back, I say, ancient times, but 100, 200 years ago, yeah. they did the same thing here. <coughs> was your parents would give you that little quarter section. Oh, sure. Yeah. Everybody would come out and build you one little room. Yep. And that's how you got started. Yeah. Yeah, we in fact I have uh, uh, friends who uh, the you know the family farm and then there are multiple homes on the farm. Right. You know they just they give them a little plot. You know sometimes they put a a mobile home on now. Sometimes they put a a big old uh, you know, you know home on it. Eventually, I had a friend that uh, actually a friend of my parents, uh, the family farm. They decided he finally made a. He made a pile of money doing a variety of things, but all related to agriculture. He decided to re, uh, you know, redo the the farm on the inside and outside, and they were moving walls and so. They started cutting into the walls. You know what they found? They found the original log cabin inside the house. They cut. They were cutting through logs <laughs> as they were opening it up. So yeah, it it's. It, it still happens perhaps today, and especially if, for families that have land and, and can do that. You know, and so, uh, so we have uh, the, the, uh, the guy and his concubine, uh, they, they go on to, um, um, to Gibeah. You think things are going to go pretty well. He's in Gibeah. He gets a, what happens? He gets, a, he gets somebody that offers to have, hey, come on in and, and, and look did you see the part where he says, look, we've got our own fodder for the donkeys. We've got our own bread and wine for ourselves. We're self-sustaining. You don't have to take care of us. Now, if you're a host in the Middle East at this time frame, what you're expected is if you bring somebody into your home, you're expected to wash their feet. In other words, take care of their necessities. You're supposed to provide, uh, at the very least, water, and bread. That's all you have to provide, but enough for something that, for them to refresh themselves. Now, they've got wine, they got their own bread, and apparently this guy takes care of them fairly well. So he's having a good uh, uh, deal, and all of a sudden, what happens? Pounding on the door. What happens? They decide, we want you to come out, and we want you to send out... We're going to take a look at this because this is interesting. I think there's enough for everyone to have one, I think. Dan and Rick, would you mind passing those out? We're going to look at... uh... I I think it's interesting, though. This guy put... 
You put in a lot of effort. You're looking for this one there, one for me. Quote unquote document. Yeah. That, but this, if this is a secondary wife, <laughs> what, what was the value of this particular woman? Because he had more than, he obviously had more than one around. Yeah. And then he really saw that. Usually, you get a concubine. This is the way it starts off, at least. Now, again, the more money you have and the more you enjoy women, maybe you have more than one wife or concubines. But it usually starts off with the first wife is barren. So you have a second wife who's going to raise your children. Because remember, this is an agricultural society. How do you, how do you farm your land? Your kids, the family. So in other words, that's another thing is the wife and the concubines all chip in as well to farm the land. Slaves too, right? If you have slaves, yep. Mm-hmm. That quite often just people that fell on hard times and lost their property. Indentured servants often. Indentured servants. You know. hey, just as an FYI, in verse 2, yeah. my translation offers an alternative translation instead of her being angry with him, it says she was unfaithful to him. Yes. The yeah, that's, uh, the NIV says the same thing. And so the question is, again, when we go back to the original Hebrew, we're not 100% certain, was she unfaithful to him before she left or after she left? But it would appear that she was at some point in time unfaithful to him. Yeah, we're not sure all of the the time the timing on it. Dude. The timeline is a little uh, a little un, uncertain. But here, look at this. Is you know, you look, you can see it, and you can see what I did is uh, uh, verbatim quotes, uh, bold italics, necessary contextual alterations, bold par- paraphrasic alterations, and the normal font is unique features. So you can see that as we go through this, there is some. The men of the city, you know, you see that. The men of Sodom, the men of the son of Belial, which, by the way, eventually becomes men of evil or sons of evil or the devil eventually in the New Testament. They surround the house. They reference the house. They're pounding on the door. They're both young and old. They call. They said. They they called out the lot. They said to the old man who's the owner of the house. They said to him, where is the men? Bring them out. You see, the parallel is amazing. Look at the second page. Same thing again. They went out. They went out to them. He said, don't do this. Please don't do this. Don't act wickedly. You know what you think this offer lifted this story right out of Genesis? for he, Yes. He did it to show that, that he, what he did is to show just how Canaanite Israel had become. They had been canonized, is one of the terms that some of the scholars use. I'm sorry? You're saying this isn't historical. No, I'm saying it is historical, but he chose to use the exact, almost the exact wording from, from uh, Genesis. The parallel was there. He chose to use it and to make it very obvious as you compare the two that, it, that this is exactly what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, that the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah had permeated Israel. Sodom and Gomorrah were early Canaanite civilizations. And Sodom and Gomorrah obviously were worthy of God's destruction Yeah. because of their evil. And what's going to happen is that these people are going to be destroyed too. They're going to be put to the sword. And, and, and all of Israel in chapter 20, we get to chapter 20, all of Israel comes out against them. And Benjamin refuses to let the town be destroyed. And so they go to war. There's a civil war between 11 tribes against one tribe. And, uh, and it ends up being that, that Benjamin is virtually destroyed without, to, the, to the extent there are only 600 men left in all of Benjamin. And by the way, 10% of all of Israel's army, stand, the army that they called up, 10% of them die in the battle. So it's not like Israel gets away unscathed either. There's punishment to go around. 10% of your people die as a result of the fact that you went up against Benjamin. So God, you know, 
It's interesting, sometimes the, God's wheels of justice seem to move slowly, and other times they move very quickly, but at this point, these people end up being destroyed. So the, the issue of this is, I have two daughters, I have a virgin daughter, and I have a concubine. Please, please, bring them out. You know, do to them whatever you want. Wow. This is, so... You can see that the three pages, it's amazing how similar this, these, this passage is. I'm, not saying, I'm saying it's the same. It happened. Israel, Israel almost destroys Benjamin as a result of this. But you can see the similarities. It's, 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 it's almost mind-blowing how it's parallel the entire time. Let's talk about it. First of all, we have, the, we, 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 have, we have to at least discuss for a moment the issue of homosexuality. Homosexuality in Scripture is an evil, but it is of the same caliber evil as two other major things that we don't tend not to, bother to be bothered too much by. One, fornication, which is sex outside of marriage to anybody, whether they're married or not. And two, adultery. All three of those, adultery, fornication, and homosexuality, are all capital offenses. They all deserve death. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but that's, that's how bad, that's how evil God believes that all three of those are, that they are capital offenses. He also says, by the way, that if you have a child that is mouthy, and doesn't obey you as a rebellious child, that they're worthy of capital offense too. Um, we were, my wife and I were discussing the issues that we have with, with rape today, and her comment, I'm going, ooh, man, there's no grace for you. Uh, you know, and she says, you know, the easiest way to deter rape, she believes, is if you castrated a man after he raped someone. If you knew that that was the possibility that you would have castration for raping some women, chances are she believes that the 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 uh, the number of rapes would go down drastically. <laughs> and I'm going well. I I'm not sure I can argue with you on the point, but I I'm not sure I'm real thrilled about the idea either. Well, I'm just I'm just telling you what I'm telling you what what a, from a woman's perspective. That's all I'm saying. But yeah. if you what you mentioned, if you look at especially some of the publicized cases of of rapes and what have you, you wind up with no punishment in a sense for a lot of guys. A young fellow out in um, California, whatever, University of Judge Gates, time off because he was ruining his career. Right. Or he was from a good family. Yeah, or good family. Like, yeah. Seriously? And it incensed the, the women right now are incensed of what's going oh, on. I, I, and and I think they have a right to be. Years. They have a right to be incensed. But, and so homosexuality is really, God says it's, it's evil. It says in Leviticus, it says in Deuteronomy, it says if it happens, kill them. Pretty simple. Okay. Now, now, does that mean that somebody who has homosexual tendencies should be put to death? No. Nor does it say today that we should put them to death. That's that's an issue of law that we deal with in our country. So the issue is the act. It is not the the um, the emotion or the mental or the DNA of a person. Um, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm amazed at the arguments that we hear today about the fact, well, God, you know, God made me, God made me perfect. Well, yes and no. The original, originally we were perfect. But original sin corrupted us. And the corruption infects our DNA. That's why we're sick. That's why we get, that's why we have illnesses. That's why we have Problems with all sorts of things that we're looking for ways of correcting it with the DNA. You know, we, if we correct the DNA, it corrects the problem, right? Isn't that what we talk about today? That's why we. That's why we took the time of mapping the DNA sequence. My daughter is in microbiology and, and molecular genetics, and that was a big deal, man. Ma- manu- 
my you know mapping all of that out and she was involved in mapping of certain types of illnesses specifically cancer when she was at uh, Michigan State she had she has an uncanny ability to look at numbers and see patterns very quickly it, it just blows me I, I you know it's like you, all X's and there's a, a single O or something or other and you find it on this chart and I and I look forever to find it she just looks and goes oh it's right there she literally just looking and, and she would walk through the the lab when they were working on the computers with other other people there and she go oh do you see that sequence there she's walking by and you're going who are you you know how can you do that you just literally walk by a string of numbers and you go oh there it is right there there's the sequence it, it repeats itself there so dna is important now think of it think of it this way we think about what happens to us and, what, and why there are so many things that are going on in our world today that, that, are, that we have issues with. If, a, if we are to be the reflection of God, we're a mirror, right? We're supposed to reflect him. We're supposed to be made in his image. So we image him. If a mirror is broken, does it show accurately the picture, or does it show fractures, and does it show parts of the picture, but not all of it, and does it show it complete? No longer does it. The pieces only show parts of the original. They can't show the entire thing. Why? Because it's broken. As it is today, we are broken people. None of us get out of this life. We all start as having original sin, and that is the result of how we, we function. We function as people who are flawed. Now, all flaws are bad. All sin is bad. But God seems to say that some sins are so heinous that they deserve death. I'm just saying. I'm, you know, you want to argue? That's fine. You can argue. But you're not going to be arguing with me. You're so arguing with, with God. Thursday on the law is, uh, are all the laws equal? Or is, are there more important laws uh, than others? I think we concluded it was either all or nothing. It's right. Which is what which is what Paul says. If you're guilty, and James says it, you're guilty of one. You're guilty of all. You don't you don't get a choice. It's it's all or nothing. So while we tend, and even God seems to indicate that some are are more heinous, all of them are guilty and deserve what? Death. Yeah. And that's what we get. And remember, I, I keep telling you guys, when we talk about a king, you come into the king's kingdom and you disobey the king's law, you have two, there are two types of punishments you get. You either get banished forever from the kingdom or death. And in spiritual situations, spiritual death began at the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed. So not only were they banished from the garden, and they're banished from God's presence, but they're also, they also died spiritually. Now, they also started to die. The time, the, the clock started to tick on their, on their mortality, and they started to die, you know, as well. But, so it, it, it is an issue. Now, the second issue that we're going to talk about is, the, is this, this guy is a, this, this host in Gibeah. is a horrible host. When you take somebody into your, your, your house, you're supposed to protect all of them, not just some. You, you don't get a choice of protecting, oh, we're only going to protect the men. We're not going to protect the women. He offers up his own daughter. Yeah, which older. says what? <laughs> he's, well, he's protecting the guests more than his own family. And he's protecting who? He's protecting the males. <laughs> At the end, it's it's yes. He he says fine, just take her. You know, he, he basically throws her out. No, but the host says. But he ends up not. It ends up being that just the concubine goes out. Because you'll notice that it says here that the men would not listen so, in verse 25, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. doesn't say anything about the host's daughter. But in 24 it says he offered her up. Yes, he did. 
yeah. Daughter, yeah. Yep, he does. Which says what? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, is that the way that that is that the way God designed relationships to be? Hmm. Is there is there supposed to be <laughs> patriarchal society? We rule over the the women to the point of you know we can toss it, we can toss them out if we want. Is that is that is that supposed to be? Is that supposed to be what patriarchalism is? No. So what we have here is we have a situation that often, unfortunately, I've read a number of of articles uh, dealing with this passage, and it depends on your perspective. Uh, There are some some male authors. I I, I didn't read a single male author that said that it was... um, that this is right, and that the man rules and women, you know, man rules, women rule, or whatever, uh, that that was not the case. But I read a number of uh, mixed reviews from female writers. Uh, some of them that are much more uh, in, um, I want to use a correct word here. Uh, that are much more militant in their feminism uh, say that this is the picture of all patriarchal societies. That's not the case. It's not the case. It's the case for this situation. It points out how evil not necessarily Israel is, although Israel is, is guilty of this, but it points out how bad Canaanites are. You're correct. You're correct. Which doesn't make it right. No, I get the point. You look around, it seems like examples today of patriarchal societies. Yeah, it's pretty close. It can be, yes. But should it be? All right, so we have a broken society as well. the book we read the other half of the church. Yes. And the term in her translation in Hebrew for helper was Azer, which implies actually more of a warrior defender. Yes. As a compliment to, to men. The term helper in Genesis that is used to refer to Eve is the same term that is used of God throughout the Old Testament at times. And it's the word Azer. At least that's how we pronounce it. Not sure that's correct Hebrew, but it means a, a defender, someone who is a uh, comes alongside and is uh, a warrior with you. So you've got uh, a, a woman, a wife, who is supposed to be, in essence, co-equal. Although, remember, roles are, and this is interesting. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday. Um, and uh, Dave uh, Nelson was here and spoke on Sunday from uh, from um, uh, Utah. He talked and he did a good job. Um, I want to wrap up what he said just a little more um, because he talked about the fact that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in a relationship, and God is a God of relationships, and that all three of them are in a relationship, but there is an order, and each of them has a role to to play out. God the Father commands the Son and the Spirit to do certain things. God the Father, God the Son, depending upon your theology, some theology says that they're the ones that send the Holy Spirit. There is a the Orthodox Church says, no, it is the Father who sends the Spirit, not the Son. He's not involved. But I would tend to disagree with that because if you remember when Jesus is talking about the paraclete, or as Jim says, the parakeet, uh, the paraclete is the person, the counselor, if you will, the, uh, the one who comes alongside, the teacher, the one who helps us. And Jesus says, I can't send him unless I go which to me says that he is as involved in the sending of the Holy Spirit as God the Father. Now, God the Son has a role of playing the paraclete for us in heaven. God the Holy Spirit is our paraclete here on earth. In other words, there are specific roles 
that each of them function and fulfill. Just as, unfortunately for some folks, there are specific roles that we have that God has given us in the family. And uh, uh, it doesn't mean that someone is less than someone else, just like you can't say that God the Son is less than God the Holy Spirit or God the Father. If you did, you would be what? If you said God the Son was not of the same essence as God the Father, what are you saying? Hmm? Blasphemy, yeah. And what is it? What is it? Arianism. It's what the church fought and was supposedly settled in the first, the first, the third council, the Council of Nicaea in 325. God the Son is of the same essence as God the Father. He's co-equal, but he has a different role. He does different things. Does it make him less God? Then in the relationship with the family, does it make the, the wife less of a person or less of a human? No. Makes her co-equal. She just has a different role that she plays. Now, sometimes the roles are reversed, and that's okay as long as it's within the family. And the family makes those decisions as to what's going to be best. You know, there was a time when uh, there are certain families, I know, for example, there are families that, that you don't want the man to be taking care of the money. You just don't. Uh, I had a, a, a family, a, a friend, a dear friend. They ended up divorcing because the husband couldn't keep control of the finances. And he, he, he refused to let them go. And he bankrupted them. Well, and even uh, Proverbs talk about the, uh, the idea of woman is running all the household yeah. and yeah. money. And yeah. Proverbs 30. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, in that, I, I felt bad for her, but she's going. If I don't divorce him, she says I'll have nothing when I retire. And she was in her fifties at the time. She's going. I got to rebuild my life because every time I get any money, he goes out and spends it. Now I'm not saying it was right or wrong what they did, but that's you know. But the point. My point is that some people are really good with money, and if it's and if it's your wife, well then, for goodness sakes, let her do it. You know, if she's got it. If she's got a, a degree in finance, I'm thinking that's a pretty good deal, you know? Speaking of which, by the way, um, Keith's not here. Did, did you and he talk? Did you, did you get the email that he sent you? No? Rick? You, Keith? Keith, the, one of the other guys? Nope, okay. Okay. So uh, Keith is in the process of changing jobs, which is cool. Uh, finance is what made me think of that. Um, but his mother-in-law is uh, really gone downhill quite a bit. She was in assisted living, and she's now in memory care, and she's now become bedridden. So he was supposed to be here today. So I'm wondering if maybe there's an issue. So you might want to just remember Keith's mother-in-law in prayer while you, if you guys think about it. So, anyhow, uh, where are we at here? Okay. This man and the Levite end up putting his concubine outside, and she is raped all night long. Is that right? Is that proper? Is that what you do when you get in trouble? You throw the least of, you throw somebody under the bus? How do you handle things? Well, what if it was at higher stakes? I'm going to come in here and kill you and your child, or if you don't give me something. What do you do? I don't know. You fight till death. <laughs> I'm sorry. I may be yeah. dead, but I, I'm going to go down fighting. This is how I would this, this, it, you know, this is a this is a struggle that we have. We look at it and we go, "What's right?" And you know, do I choose? the least resistance, or do I choose to do what's right? And sometimes it's, it's a struggle. I, I, I can remember I did, it wasn't that I struggled and I was going to be killed or anything like that, but I remember I stood with a, with a man who had been wrongly accused of something, and it, uh, there was proof that he didn't, but that, you know, sometimes 
when it comes to proof. Um, you know, don't don't bother me with facts because I have my feet firmly planted in midair. You know, because so uh, I ended up going. And standing with him, standing by him, and you know, I took some, I took a lot of heat for a while from a particular area as a result of that. But he was, he was, he was wronged. He was wronged, and you know, I, I'm going to myself. Do I go over and stand with him and make a stand because it's right, or do I, and it's going to affect me financially, or do I go? I, I don't care. This is right. I'm going to do it anyhow. And I'll just suffer the consequences because it's what's right. You know, God says that when you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're to do what? Rejoice. Huh. I get to rejoice because I got beat up. You know, Paul and Silas, they get beat up. They're thrown into prison. And what do they do at midnight? They're singing. Now, I got to tell you. If I got beat up and I probably had some broken ribs in that, I'm not even sure I could take a breath, let alone sing. You can imagine it probably wasn't the prettiest tune that they could carry. But they rejoiced. When was the last time you stood for what was right and rejoiced when you took the consequences of it? i got to tell you, there are a lot of times I didn't do it the right way. I backed off. I also have to tell you there are times when I've done it the right way and I've done it for probably the wrong reason. Early in my life, I always, I always tried to stand for what was right. And I remember there was a situation that we developed that, that came in up that I had to, to make a decision. And my wife said to me, she says, why are, you, why are you wrestling with this? I go, what are you talking about? She says, I've never known you to take the easy way. You've always gone the hard way. Whatever the hard way is, if it's the right thing to do, you're going to do it. You know you're going to do it. Just stop worrying about it and go do it. We'll live through it. Huh? Yeah, my my easer came up, yeah. Yeah, but you know what? As a result of that, every time I have to make a decision, I think to myself, am I going to disappoint my wife if I don't do the right thing? Here, Here's another thought. If I'm worried about my wife feeling her feelings about me, why is it that I don't worry about God's thought, what he thinks about me when I do that? Hmm. I, I had that pointed out to me by God very abruptly, very, it was horrible. I was leading worship in a church, and um, I felt compelled to, uh, to do a couple of worship actions that I wasn't sure would be accepted in the church. And um, I just really felt compelled to do them, and I chose not to because I felt that I, it would cause me problems. And, um, and it was a battle. I'm going, yeah, I just don't know, man. I, you know, I, I just don't know I need to do this battle or not right now. I went and sat down after the the worship time, and um, I started crying in the pew because I realized that I was more interested in what others thought of me than I was about what God thought of me. <clears throat> and it broke my heart. It broke my heart. Because I realized that I was a, a respecter of persons versus a respecter of God. God calls us to be a respecter of him first. And let the chips fall where they may. I'm not sure I always learn that lesson and remember it all, but when I remember it, it does something to me because I realize I failed God mightily. And who knows what could have happened in that moment if I had been obedient to his leading. So, obey God. Yeah, Rick. Matthew 18, I had a, I can say, a similar circumstance to this story, mm-hmm. but I had a blind double date. So my, my good friend, his girlfriend, and I got fixed up. We had a blind double date. So I don't know where we're headed to, but on the way out, we stopped at a park, 
just to spend some time with this park, you know? And it seemed like out from beneath these trees, this group of guys come over and they started somewhat chumming with us, but I had a very uneasy feeling about it. You know, the guys walking around with a bottle of wine and stuff, you know, and, and you know, they're, they're pretty drunk. And so um, I, I said to my friend, I said, you know, we're gonna have to get the heck out of here, you know? So, um, so they kind of overheard me whispering, and they go, you guys can go, but the women stay. Hmm. So then I threw my keys to my friend and I go, run! And then I stood in front of the leader, expecting the worst. And it just bought me just enough time that we got some separation where they were able to run to the parking lot where the car was. And as soon as I saw that they were far enough away, I took off. <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember flying into the back of the car. And then the bottle, they, they threw the bottle in the car and then it just splattered all over the, the back of the car. But I was like thrilled that we got out of there in one piece. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, like it was like probably one of the more scarier times in your life when you have know, threatened by a group of men. Yeah. yeah. Just a change in the subject, but I know yeah, we need to go. Um, I don't know how many of you that know Dennis Hines from uh, Lake Orion. He's been this church for many years. Uh, this past weekend, his grandson, Sammy Brown. Oh. His son's back there. Louis Van Burden. Oh, man. Seven years old. Wow. Well, let's do that. It's 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 time. I've kept too long, and I apologize. We'll stop.